Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8, all the way to 6, verse 9. And it says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little of or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soil, but soul, is not, and is not satisfied with life's good things. He also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the food? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Oh man, I hope y'all are doing well because as you saw, we got a ton of scripture to work through this morning. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, in the event that you didn't get to catch uh, LC, uh, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes beginning in chapter 5, verse 8, working all the way through chapter 6, verse 
9. And so while you open or load your Bible, uh, just a couple of quick things for you this morning. The first one is, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you or even the opportunity to pray for you. There are these connect cards on the chairs. Fill one out uh, once more. We'd love to hang. We'd love to pray for you and leave it in the connect desk, which is in the back. Uh, additionally, if you are new and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to hook you up with the Bible. That's our gift to you. We love to uh, preach from God's Word. We certainly love God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word to you. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's just dive right in. If, if, once more, if you're new <clears throat> uh, here at Storehouse McKellen, we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's a book in the Old Testament, and the writer, King Solomon, is writing uh, and bringing an honest and hard word as he is trying to discover the meaning of life in a fallen world. We titled this series, as you can look behind me, we titled this series The Paradox of Life because in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon wrestles with the existence of much of life's experiences death and life, happiness and sadness. He works through the confusion that some of this can bring. He works through some of the, the, the or he works through ultimately what the purpose of life is. And throughout this book, we're going to encounter, as we have seen, we are going to encounter uh, words and phrases such as vanity, chasing the wind, or living under the sun. We're going to visit these phrases later this morning. And so, Again, if you're new, last week we found ourselves throughout Holy Week, and now we return to Ecclesiastes. And so as we find ourselves once more in Ecclesiastes, let me begin uh, looking at this text with a, with a story from uh, the Canterbury Tales. I don't know if you ever read the Canterbury Tales in high school. It has been a long time since I have done so, but hopefully this story will uh, hook you up with a little bit of where we're going. Well, in the Canterbury Tales, uh, this individual tells a story of three men who go uh, on the search for death. And the goal is that if they find death, then they can kill him. And as they are searching for death, an old man tells them that death can be found at the foot of an oak tree. As they make their way, uh, instead of finding death, they find eight bushels of, of gold. And upon finding the gold, death is now no longer on their mind, but greed has now surfaced. They discuss a plan to protect the gold and how they're going to eventually steal it the very next morning. The youngest of these three goes into town to buy some food and some wine, and he goes on to buy some rat poison so that he can poison the wine. In his mind, he wants to poison the other two men so that he can take uh, the gold for himself. But what he doesn't know is that the other two are plotting to kill him when he gets back. And sure enough, as he comes back with food and drink, the other two men kill the one who brought the food and drink. And assuming that their plan of success, uh, or assuming that their plan has had success, they celebrate, pick up the wine, drink it, and then they too die. The old man was right. All three greedy men found death under the oak tree. In chapters 5 and 6 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to provide us with stark warnings about the love of money, wealth, and possessions. 
The Bible is not shy about the teaching of greed, and, and in brevity, we can summarize Scripture's teaching on those with abundance and those without by observing four categories of people. This is not on your notes, and I'm going to walk through these very quickly. In Scripture, we encounter, for instance, the godly rich. The godly rich are those who have been given abundance, but find their identity in who God is and what God has done for them. And as a result, when it comes to their wealth, they use it wisely, they invest in it, and they are generous. The second category of people are the ungodly rich. So it's the godly rich, the ungodly rich. And these are those whose wealth is their treasure. Identity is something that they're constantly searching for because they believe it can be purchased. The third category is the godly poor. The godly poor are those who are content with what they have been given. While not much, their identity is found in the work of God for them and not the perception of the world around them. And finally, the ungodly poor. The ungodly poor, the book of Proverbs discusses at length and speaks about a person in the context of laziness, the one who doesn't want to go out and work to receive some cash so that they can use it to, to earn a good wage and put some sweat in that they don't want to work. They're lazy. They also uh, categorize this person as one who is foolish with their finances. Everything that they make, they just blow their spending or they blow all their earnings. Additionally, the, the ungodly poor are those who exhibit, for instance, false humility, that they make themselves look holier than thou because they, are, uh, they don't have as much as others. And really, it is just a false humility. So once more in the event that you were taking notes, that's the godly rich, the ungodly rich, the godly poor, and then the ungodly poor. The point of this, the point of those categories is to show that it's not so much about how much you have rather than who you are. Whatever or whoever has your heart is often revealed by the way in which you view and handle your wealth. In short, it is about godliness and contentment. And that's where we're going to be challenged this morning. Our hearts are going to be challenged because when we consider what Solomon has to say about the dangers of wealth, here's what we're going to learn. That the heart that is content in the providence of God finds enjoyment in the gifts of God. It's your main idea. The heart, excuse me, <clears throat> the heart that is content in the providence of God finds enjoyment in the gifts of God regardless of season or status. And if that is true, as we unpack this large text, if that is true, then Christian, let me ask you a question. Are you content? Can you with confidence say like the Apostle Paul does to the Philippians where he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
It's an important question to work through and wrestle with because in the context of wealth and possessions, joy apart from God keeps our appetite wandering. It keeps our appetite unsatisfied. You see, in Christ, not only are we satisfied with where and who we are in Christ, we are so because God has met us where we are. And in doing so, he has rescued us, not simply through the forgiveness of sin, but in the receiving of a new heart. As a result, the Holy Spirit who resides in us is at work in us to make us more and more like Jesus. And so as we consider this very large text, let me pray and we'll dig in. Father, we praise you for this morning because it is you that has given us this morning according to your mercy and grace. As we examine your word, would you by your spirit reveal what is competing uh, in our hearts, what is ruling and reigning in our hearts? And in doing so, may we turn toward you by grace in repentance and worship. May your word be sweeter than the taste of honey this morning. Amen. All right, y'all ready? Okay, well you said it. All right, so in this section of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is using this literary device called a chiasm. Uh, you get a lot of stuff here at Storehouse, free coffee and English stuff, right? Here we go. So he's using a, a literary device called a chiasm. And here's the best way I can, I can describe it for you because I didn't want to draw it. But here's the best way. A chiasm is where, for example, when we consider our text, the front portion of the passage and the, and the back end of the passage uh, say almost the same thing but they are written differently. And the point is that the front and the back end is drawing you toward the middle. They're drawing you toward the middle because in the middle of the text is where you're gonna find the main idea. And so in a moment, for instance, when we begin breaking this down, we're gonna look at parts in chapter five and parts in chapter six. Same thing, uh, or excuse me, same principle, different text, right? And we'll see that in a little bit. We're going to break down this, the entirety of this chapter into three sections. We're going to be looking at the love of money as a sad investment, the love of money as a bad investment, and then finally, the gift of enjoyment. Let me say that one more time. We're going to be looking at the love of money as a sad investment, the love of money as a bad investment, and then finally, the gift of enjoyment. In total, we're going to be looking at six warnings from Solomon on the dangers of wealth. And in chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, along with chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, he gives us at least two of those dangers. Okay? Be tracking. Here we go. Uh, where are we? Beginning in verse 8, I'm just going to read the first part and then launch into everything else. Beginning in verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated 
fields, okay? Here's what Solomon is getting at. Before he begins to uh, pick at our hearts, or before God through Solomon begins to pick at our hearts, he begins with the dangers of money at a systemic level. He begins with the dangers of money at a systemic level. For instance, in the context of governments or institutions or companies or sadly, the church. In other words, when greed has consumed leadership in these areas, the poor are oppressed. Justice and righteousness are violated. In short, when when people in leadership or those at the top so to speak, are filled with greed in their hearts, those who are under them suffer, are oppressed, and always go hurting. Solomon adds in this section that we should not be amazed. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something about it, that when it comes to, for instance, systemic corruption, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't address injustices. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't fold in more accountability. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve the injustice that people experience at the expense of those wanting more power and more greed. What he is saying when he says that we should not be amazed, he is simply saying that this is the condition or result of living life in a fallen world. And he transitions into verse 10. So he takes it from this systemic corruption level. And in verse 10, we learn more about this issue, uh, about power and greed. uh, But he does it in a way where now he makes it personal. So it's almost like he sets us up to think, right, man, we need to stick it to the man. It's all about this systemic corruption and these companies and these organizations and these institutions. And then he brings it down and is ultimately arguing is that the reality about all of this is the issue is us. In other words, none of us are immune to greed. And unless there's no one else at the bottom, there's no one else under us, we are all capable of greed and coveting. What Solomon is arguing is that the love of money is is vanity because there's no satisfaction found in it other than the oppression of other people. In short, he's saying, It's not just systemic corruption that's the issue. It's our fickle hearts that's the issue. The stronger the money problem, as one theologian says it, the wider the hole in the human heart. And so the first danger of wealth isn't merely systemic corruption. It is our fickle hearts. The second problem in this text is that with more money or the desire for more money come more problems. The great prophet of the 1990s, the notorious B.I.G., went on to say, more money, more problems. Okay? And here's the thing. He was right. He was right. And Solomon shares this classic proverb 2,000 years before that. 
writing that the love of money is a sad investment because just as your wealth increases, so do your problems. Let's look at verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Here's what he's saying. As our love for money increases, that is, if we are governed by greed, as our love for money increases, what you're going to find are, it's kind of a graphic one, what you're going to find are leeches. People are going to want to uh, use you for your finances. Now, you can look at this on the internet and do the research yourself. An example here would be professional athletes who have a good amount of money, make a good deal. There are several reports of particularly former professional football players who in their wealth weren't just supporting family, but were supporting so many other people, paying their phones, paying their rent, paying their houses, because people kept coming up to them and saying, hey man, can you help me? Hey man, can you help me? So many former pro athletes have gone bankrupt because they were uh, essentially supporting and giving their money away because people were just mooching off of them, freeloaders. Additionally, apart from that, and what, he, and what Solomon is saying is, when that happens, all you're doing is just watching it go to waste. And if that's not the case, Solomon goes on to say that, uh, or Solomon's argument is with more problem or with more money come more responsibility. You want to get the mansion? Now you need a staff to make sure that the mansion is taken care of. Now you need to make sure that someone is feeding you, making sure that your bills are getting paid, that your schedule is getting taken care of. And it sounds really cool and it sounds really good, especially when you watch like MTV shows. But the truth is all of that money, you're just watching it be spent. You're watching it be wasted. So if it's not freeloaders, it's the fact that, man, now you're just working to survive and you're just paying everyone else to enjoy your stuff. And that's one of his things that he says. It's the stranger who enjoys your wealth. In verse 12, he goes on to say, sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Solomon says, the one who is content, you know what the difference between that one is and, and the one who has a love for money, is that the one who is content sleeps. The one who is content is at peace. The one who is filled with greed can't sleep. It's like having the meat sweats, right? It's like a gluttony for, for, for money. Right, you guys laugh, but you laugh because you know it's true. Anybody know what the meat sweats are? The meat sweats are when it's a little too late in the day and you eat more than you should, right? Gluttons, all of us. And you eat more than you should, whether it's a couple of burgers, whether it's from experience, I don't know, a couple of burgers, or maybe it's just a really big steak. I don't know, man, whatever. And you go to sleep and you're tossing and turning in your sleep and then 3.31 a.m. rolls around and you're just sweating, you're just sweating all that protein and salt, right? That's called the meat sweats. They're terrible, okay? That's what Solomon is talking about here, right? What the meat sweats are to us with Whataburger, right? What we see here is the meat sweats are this like gluttony for greed. The one whose heart is governed by greed can't sleep at night. And it's not just this 
tossing and turning because of anxiety. They're worried about whether they're going to receive more money. They're worried about how they're going to get more money. They're worried about where they're at. They're worried about so many other things that they have no peace, which is the irony to greed. And in verse 12, Solomon gives us pretty much the first contrast to the love of money, right? For the one who loves money, for the one who's governed by greed, what's the opposite? It's actually rest and contentment. He goes on to say in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. So this individual works a good job, whether he eats little or much, he sleeps. It's similar to what Solomon wrote about back in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 6, Solomon wrote, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So that proverb, what Solomon means is two hands uh, full of toil. What they're doing is the individual's like working so much, just trying to reach and grab for everything and trying to accumulate and trying to consume, while the one who is restful, the one who is content, actually gets to enjoy their labor as they work their regular job. One hand is working, one hand is quiet with content, enjoying the gifts of God for them. Additionally, these first two, so more money, more problems, and then our fickle hearts, it really challenges us when we look at something like Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 is a prayer, and here, here's the, the, the middle portion. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So in short, the writer is saying, here's my prayer, Lord. I'm asking two things. Keep lies from me. And then number two, just give me what I need for today. If you give me too much, I'm going to forget about you. If you give me too little, I'm going to curse you. Give me only what I need for today so that I would depend on you. Do we have the guts to pray that kind of prayer? Just give me what I need for today. So in short, we've looked at verses 8 through 12. The question here is, well, how, do these, how are these dangers addressed in chapter 6? Well, we're going to go to verses 7 through 9. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but I'll go through them really quickly. Once more, same principle, different examples. So in chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. The question is, how are these dangers, more money, more problems, fickle hearts, how are they addressed in chapter 6? Well, in verse 7, Solomon goes on to say that all the toil of man for his mouth, uh, his appetite is not satisfied. So that's once more, more money, more problems. When asked the question, how much is enough, John Rockefeller responded with just a little bit more. The one who invests themselves in, in the love of money is a sad investment because they will never be satisfied or fulfilled. Their appetite will always be left wandering because they're gluttons for greed. I don't know if you've ever watched The Simpsons. I think they're hilarious. There's this one little scene in The Simpsons where Homer is talking to Monty Burns. 
And he tells Monty Burns, you're the richest man I know. And Mr. Burns responds by saying, yes, but I'd trade it all for more. <laughs> Gluttons for greed. That's the point. An appetite that is always wandering. An appetite, a soul that is never satisfied. To bring it back to a biblical text. Jesus in Matthew 13 says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the individual who hears the word of God, but they are more consumed by what this world has to offer, and in particular, riches and greed, that as a result of their desire, it chokes the word out, and it becomes unfruitful. It doesn't actually take root in the individual's heart. And that's what Solomon is ultimately writing about in verses 7 through 9. He says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity, a striving after wind. We'll talk about that in just a minute. What's the result of the love of money as a sad investment? In these two sections, Solomon has said the result of it is vanity. And the word vanity, as we've talked about when, we've, when we opened up with Ecclesiastes, the word vanity is this uh, Hebrew word pronounced hevel. And hevel means a breath. It's a mist. It's temporary. And so that's the first thing that we learn about money as a sad investment or the love of money as a sad investment. It's vanity. It's a breath. It's a breeze. It's going to go away. The next one is that it's the chasing after wind. In other words, when you think you have it, you actually don't. The chase for the love of money is a sad investment because it's like chasing smoke and holding it in your hand. And then finally... And most practically, the love of money is a sad investment because people always get hurt. And it doesn't just happen at the systemic level. The love of money is a sad investment because it leaves our appetite wandering and dissatisfied. Well, next, he makes the case for the love of money being a bad investment. And he does this through Proverbs, not referring to the book of Proverbs, but he hooks us up with some Proverbs and some stories, some wise teaching with some dense meaning. This is verses 13 to 17 in chapter 5, and then verses 3 through 6 in chapter 6. So once more, same principle, different kind of text, different examples. And so in these sections, we're going to look at four warnings. So we've already looked at two. I told you there's a total of six. We've looked at two, right? System corruption and fickle hearts, more money, more problems. Number three, financial loss. Going back to chapter five, beginning in verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. So here's what he does. Uh, he gives us a story so that he can paint what he's about to say. He gives us the story of an individual who hoards all of his money. You guys know what hoarding is, right? 
The definition uh, defines hoarding as persistent difficulty, discarding or parting with possessions because of a perceived need to save them. In the case of this individual, he was hoarding all of his finances and then eventually his hoarding led him to make foolish decisions and as a result, lost it all. Verse 14 says he lost it all in a bad venture. Now, to be perfectly clear, we should save, we should invest, we should give, we should spend. John Wesley said, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. The point here in this story, the point here is that one of the dangers of a love of money is that it's a bad investment because you can lose it all, where you put all of your work, all of your effort into hoarding all of those finances, and then you lose them all. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But the first one is just the loss of finances or the loss of wealth suddenly. The second danger is that as a result of losing all those finances, he is unable to provide an inheritance for his family. Going back to verse 14. He is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Instead of being wise with his wealth, the man lost it all. And as a result of losing it all, he's not only left with nothing, he has nothing to give to his son as an inheritance. And Solomon is working through this. Essentially, he's asking the question, what's the point of all of that work if you lost it? What's the point of all of that work if you can't even take care of your family in the future? So the second one is there's no inheritance, no legacy. The third is death. Also in verse 14 and 15, or actually verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Solomon is saying in all of this wealth, when he died, even if he had kept it, he couldn't take it with him. And so he begs the same question. What is the point of all of this work if he lost it all, can't take care of his family, and he can't take it with him when he dies? The loss of riches suddenly or foolishly can lead people to great degrees of harm. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes about tragic suicides following the economic crisis in 2008. I'm going to read a portion of it. Here's what he says. The acting chief financial officer of Fetty Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head be behind the wheel of his Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. And you can keep looking at more of these reports. The idea here is simple. Solomon isn't just writing creatively. He's saying the love of money for many is everything. And when it is gone, so are they. 
the point is, in the grave, our wealth, our investments, our possessions all add up to zero. That's his point. Martin Luther wrote, what sort of God is it that is not even capable of defending himself against moths and rust? The love of money is a bad investment because of sudden financial loss, no inheritance, no legacy, can't take it with you when you die. And then finally, verse, or finally number four, this is in verse uh, 17, there's no peace. Let's look at verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness. We're going to come back to that word to circle it. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. What happens to the person whose love of money ended up being a bad investment? They have no peace and they have no joy. You see, without God's gift to enjoy abundance, everything that money can buy lacks joy. In this example, in chapter 5, in this example, the rest of this individual's days were left in darkness that were filled with vexation. In other words, he was irritated, maybe because of foolish decisions. Maybe he couldn't get the money back, so he's irritated. He's working triple now, but nothing's really happening. He's, the rest of his days were filled with sickness. You work a ton. You, you, you uh, put in all the hours. Eventually, your immune system goes down. You're going to get sick. You're going to go down. The rest of his days were filled with anger, specifically bitterness. Maybe he was angry and bitter because uh, of the bad decisions he made. Maybe he was bitter and angry because others are moving forward or others seem content or others just seem happy. Others are actually pursuing joy and this guy had it all and now he's just bitter and angry. And yes, this is in the context of wealth, but that's a really good question to ask yourself. Are you angry? Are you bitter? when it comes to finances, when it comes to wealth. I see what other people have. I don't like that I don't have it. And therefore you're angry and bitter when the subject of finances come up. Or perhaps you're like the individual, you're just working, you're working, you're working, and man, other people are actually enjoying my wealth. And if the example of this story doesn't, doesn't really give us much, we can go now to, verse, uh, to chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, and he gives an even more stark example, more stark story. So this is in verse 3 of chapter 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Here's what he's saying. There's a dude who, there's a man who, who works and works. And this might be you. You're working, you're working, you're working, you're working. This individual fathers a hundred children, but the ability to enjoy good gifts such as family, food, drink, sex, friendship, apart from God, leave one joyless and unsatisfied. They're just longing for more. Here's the point of what Solomon is saying here. Abundance and satisfaction apart from God are sold separately. 
And so he gives this example of saying, a stillborn child is better off. That's, why would, that's a really dark example. Why would he say that? Here's what he means. The stillborn child has found rest, whereas the wandering appetite can't. And so this word darkness comes up once in chapter 5, and then it comes up twice here in chapter 6. The wandering appetite is a, is a dissatisfied soul. In spite of everything they have, they live in darkness. And so Solomon is pointing to two things in the context of this word. The first one, in chapter 5, darkness is referring to spiritual darkness. That his heart has grown not just burdensome, but hardened. He lives in vexation. He lives in sickness. He lives in anger. It's not, oh, he just responded poorly. No, he lives in anger. He lives in vexation. He lives in sickness. It has become a part of who he is. It is his character that he is now consumed with spiritual darkness. The second part of darkness refers to the grave. That the one who worked everything, did everything, fathered the children, right? But at the end of the day, he has no burial. In other words, he didn't enjoy any of the gifts he was actually around. The love of money is a bad investment because joy will forever be withheld. God gives good gifts for us to enjoy, but we must remember that God is the one who gives joy. Apart from God, abundance and enjoyment are sold separately. One theologian says, it is better for us to sit down content where we are than where we hope to be in the delusion of our insatiable desire. The love of money is a bad investment because joy is withheld as we struggle to ever find peace. And so then we come to the middle and we come to answer the question, well, then what? If the love of money is a bad investment, the love of money is a sad investment, what would be a wise investment? In case you didn't pick up, right, this isn't so much a sermon about financial status or practical stuff. That's called a class. We're not doing that here. This is one that is after your heart. And to be fair, if wealth, for instance, or greed isn't necessarily something you struggle with, then praise be to God. Keep making wise decisions and continue to guard your heart. But one of the principles in this big text is that greed has gotten a hold of, the, of, 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 a, of a heart. And so perhaps it's not greed. Is there anything in you that reigns for your heart? Back to our text, what is our answer? Well, rather than chasing the wind, by God's grace, we can pursue contentment by enjoying the gifts of God. And we come to verses 18 to 20. This is the centrality of the passage. Here we see the name of God mentioned four times, over and over very rapidly, whereas the rest of the text, God was absent. 
And so in verses 19 to 20, actually, let's read this because we're going to spend most of our time here. It goes on to say, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given them, it has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here's what Solomon is saying. We are to accept our lot and embrace contentment with what we've been given to enjoy. And if we're considering contentment, we need to define contentment. Contentment is a heart that joyfully rests in the providence of God, regardless of season or status. And so when you consider your lot, this does not mean that you shouldn't work hard. It does not mean that you shouldn't make money. But if wealth and possession govern your heart, you will be unable to enjoy what you have. The contrast here is Solomon is saying the one who has embraced contentment finds joy and actually doesn't remember much of his former days because God has filled his heart with joy because he's enjoying the gifts that God has given him. The enjoyment of gifts, little things, simple things, everyday pleasures are gifts from God. So as a result, work hard. I'm not saying not to work hard. Work hard, put in the time, Put in the work and then find enjoyment in what you have been given with your work. Enjoy the simple, it's going to sound weird. As I was practicing this, I was like, I think this is going to sound weird. I'm going to say it anyway. Enjoy the simple everyday pleasures that money can buy. So last night, this week, has been a celebration uh, basically, of two of our members. They got married, Alan and Maribel. They're not here. Yeah, I need coffee. <laughs> right. So they got married. It was awesome. Last night, they got married on Friday. We had an after party for them on Saturday, which was yesterday. We had a lot of people at our house, okay? Don't know the number. We had a lot of people, though, right? We grilled so many pounds of food, there were all of these desserts that were baked, all of these tortillas that were brought and heated, all of this guac that was made, all of these, uh, what, we, had, we had balloons, all of the music that was set up on a Spotify account that someone was running. Here's the point. All of that took money. All of that took money. And what Solomon is saying is, hey, as you receive money because you're working hard, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the simple, everyday pleasures that money can buy. Some of you are big on, like, work starts at 8.30, and so here you are at Starbucks at 8.25, right, getting yourself your venti, mocha, whatever, right, and you're like, man, I really got to have that. I hope you enjoy it more than depend on it, but I hope you enjoy it because, right, the idea here is, man, you work hard, you put in time, you got a paycheck, which means you have some cash, and you have the ability to go to Starbucks and get yourself your venti. Do you enjoy it? It's terrible coffee, but like, <laughs> but the idea here is, do you enjoy it? 
you put in however much time you got, right? And you sit down and you watch whatever show you watch on Netflix, whatever it is they have. Do you enjoy that time? You're able to take your family on vacation over the summer. You do, but do you enjoy it? Work hard. Put in the time. Put in the money. Go for it. And enjoy the simple, everyday pleasures that money can buy. And enjoy the gift that God is giving you as you worship Him. It sounds kind of weird, but... Why? It feels like Christians ought to be sad. Like, no, man. I don't think anyone was sad last night at the house, right? Everybody was like hanging out, having a good time. That's what he's talking about. And so the idea here is, hey, instead of chasing the wind, instead of allowing your heart to be consumed by greed, pursue contentment. Pursue contentment with what you have and where you have it and the season that you're in right now in spite of what might be going on, even if it's for a moment or a night. Contentment is a, is a heart, or I should say a content heart is one that is joyful in God's blessing and presence regardless of the season or status. The heart that, that isn't content most of the time is really just one that is filled with complaint. And complaint is really just the individual who distrusts God, who is anxious about the future, not turning out the way they want it to. And complaint is really a heart that is bitter. It's a heart that's bitter. A content heart is one that is fixed upon the work of God in Christ, strengthened by grace. And the heart is revealed by how they respond to trial and season. A content heart rests and is comforted by the providence of God. That is the invisible work of God, the invisible hand of God at work in our daily lives. That he is active, not passive, involved, not disconnected. That the content heart is uh, much more comforted by the inward work of grace from God rather than external comforts by created beings. Do you lack enjoyment do you lack contentment? If you're like, well, yeah, I think it, then pray for it. Ask God for the strength to embrace contentment. Like Paul, when Paul wrote that to the Philippians, he's writing from a prison. Ask God to give you the ability to enjoy what you have. Some of you feel really guilty when you get a paycheck and you got yourself that venti. It's all good, man. It's just a venti, right? Like, enjoy it. You don't have to feel guilty about it. But the idea here is, man, if you lack contentment, do you, have you prayed for it? Have you prayed for it? The author of Hebrews said, keep your life free from the love of money. So money isn't the issue. It's the love of money that's the issue. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The gift of enjoyment comes from a heart content in the providence of God. 
And so as we conclude, we come to the place where it's like, where, where's the gospel in this? Like, I get it, contentment, enjoyment, got it. Where's, where's the gospel in this? Well, Ecclesiastes teaches that a wandering appetite is always reaching for satisfaction through idolatry and consumption and distraction and greed, whereas the gospel calls us to reach out to the cross of Jesus where he willingly gave himself for our greed and for our idolatry. See, at the cross, when Jesus cried out that it is finished, it was to say that he satisfied the wrath of God in our place and for our sin so that the restless would find rest, that the hurt would receive healing, and the hungry would be satisfied by the bread of life. The question for you and I this morning is, will we turn away from greed and pursue the God who satisfies the longing of every hungry soul who turns to him? And so Christian, do you lack contentment? Is your lack of contentment a result of greed and idolatry? Is your lack of contentment a result of guilt and shame? Bring that before the Lord this morning. Lay it down before him. Let us turn complaint into confession, greed and bitterness into thanksgiving, guilt into gratitude as we turn to God. Let us enjoy the gifts of God. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. Really love it that you came. Abundance and enjoyment are sold separately apart from life in God. However, God has provided a way for you to experience joy, and that is found first in Jesus. Turn away from your sin and repent and place your trust in him today. Church, the heart that is content in the providence of God finds enjoyment in the gifts of God regardless of season or status. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that there are idols such as greed that we allow to govern our hearts. We confess that, that we have not welcomed your light or trusted your good news to be good. God, we confess that we are guilty of closing our eyes to glory in our midst, expecting little and hoping for less, giving our hearts to something and someone or someone that isn't you. And so God, would you forgive our doubt, our idolatry? Would you renew our hope and hearts so that we would receive and experience the fullness of your grace and live in the truth of, of your word, live in the truth of Jesus who is our good God and Savior. 
this morning, may the meditation of our heart and may the words of our mouth be pleasing to you. Amen.